We don't have a lot of data on women's health care, and that's a huge problem for women's health care in general. It's also a huge problem as femtech founders are trying to get their devices approved by employers or by insurers and payers. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the MedTech Podcast. You join me, your host, Karen Deep Singh Badwell, and on this episode, we have Bethany Corbin, founder of Fem Innovation, a legal firm specializing in women's health companies. Bethany is a healthcare innovation and femtech attorney with almost a decade of experience working at multiple different law firms before founding Fem Innovation. In this episode, we delve into the issues the femtech industry faces in terms of growth and advancement. We discuss the lack of investment in women's health issues, the difficulties of advertising women's health products, the importance of involving an attorney early on in the process, and recommended organizations for those looking to get involved in this space, such as Femtech Lab and Impact 51. Welcome to the show, Bethany. How are you today? So happy to be here. I'm doing great. How about you? I'm very well, thank you. So on the industry of femtech, as we were talking offline a few days ago, you mentioned that it's an industry that's going to be expected to be worth up to $50 billion in the next couple of years. What are some of the most innovative companies or solutions that you believe are driving this growth in that direction? Yeah, so femtech has actually... a only been around since 2016. It's a very new industry. And as a result, what we're seeing with femtech has been, you know, probably what you would expect so far, a huge focus on reproductive and sexual health care. So things like your period tracking apps, your fertility apps, ovulation trackers, those have gotten the most attention for the femtech industry for the first couple of years that it was in in effect. And since then, though, we're starting to see increased investment into the femtech industry and also new and more innovative products beyond just reproductive health care. So, for instance, most recently, the new trend has been towards menopause, uh, which is, you know, obviously after reproductive health years, but looking at women as a whole and a collective and looking at the economic impact that menopause can have on the workforce, we're starting to see new innovative menopause and longevity solutions coming to the market. And in addition, we're also starting to see a bit of a movement towards breast and uterine health, um, handheld devices, for instance, that could help women with their monthly breast exams uh, detect you know, changes in the tissue. We're also starting to see more companies coming on that are doing FDA approvals for medical devices. Uh, one company, for instance, is actually trying to do a blood test for ovarian cancer. We're starting to see things like smart tampons coming on the market to help detect cervical cancer um, and really trying to redefine how how we think about women's health and the pain that's often associated with a lot of the tests and treatments uh, that accompany women's health. The other thing that we're starting to see as well is more of a movement towards looking at other health conditions that impact women disproportionately, but that are not at all you know, affected by or related to reproductive health care organs. Uh, so what I mean by that is Things like heart attacks. Women have different symptoms for heart attacks. And so we're starting to see new companies come on the market that actually have sensors that women can wear in their bras, for instance, that can try and detect abnormal heart activity. Uh, Things like Alzheimer's affect women disproportionately. And so we're starting to see innovations in those areas as well. So an interesting point that you talked about was uh, the FDA approval for Femtech. So historically, there hasn't been a lot of clinical data for Femtech in the past Has this been a challenge trying to get FDA regulatory approval or do you find that there are ways around it? 
That's a great question. So as you mentioned, we don't have a lot of data on women's health care, and that's a huge problem for women's health care in general. It's also a huge problem as femtech founders are trying to get their devices approved by employers or by insurers and payers, uh, and also investors. Whenever they're going to pitch to investors, there's not a lot of data to support the condition that they're trying to alleviate, right? Or, you know, the market impact that this could have. And because we don't have those data sets, it's a huge uphill challenge for the women's health founders in this area. With respect to FDA, it's interesting. Um, Most of the devices that we have on the market, I'd say a large proportion right now, are applications or wearables. And so they're not things that are very risky uh, to humans. And because of that, a lot of those devices are slipping under FDA. FDA enforcement discretion. So there's not necessarily required to provide proof that they are safe or effective or even accurate. And so that would be things right, like your period tracking apps, those types of things are oftentimes not getting a lot of regulatory scrutiny. I would say that that's a large proportion of the devices that we have on the market today. As a result, we do have some accuracy problems in the femtech industry. Um, And that's a bit surprising to some individuals who you know, think that once a device comes on the market, right, it's, it's been entirely vetted and it's safe and accurate. Um, there have been studies, for instance, that show that only 21% accuracy ratings for some of the free period tracking and ovulation tracking apps that are on the market today. Uh, there have been actual in-depth studies of other femtech applications, and they have shown, for instance, that 85% of them do not meet quality thresholds. So that's a huge concern that we have in women's health because this is an industry that's built off of the fact that women's healthcare has been neglected to date. So it's supposed to empower women with insights into their bodies. Now we potentially have these devices that are coming onto the market that are not giving women accurate and helpful insights into their bodies and ex- you know, um, instead of doing that, what they can potentially be doing is trading women's health data downstream for money. So there's a lot of potential harms there. It's interesting that we, you know, that we're talking about the FDA as well, because I was at a conference recently, and I was talking to investors. And what we really need in women's health care are long term solutions for the, you know, the chronic diseases that women are facing, or, you know, the cancers, that type of thing that women are experiencing. And a lot of the investment to date has been in the apps and the wearables instead. And whenever I was talking to investors about that, one of the things that they mentioned is they don't want to have to invest in a product that has to go through a lengthy FDA regulatory approval process, like the pre-market approval pathway. And because of that, they are investing in apps and devices that can get to the market quicker and get a much faster return on investment. And I think that's also potentially harmful because we're not putting the investment in the long-term research and development for women's healthcare. So talking about time to market, one trend that I'm seeing, not just in femtech, but medical devices in general, of course, is the US has become the more favorable route due to the EU MDR situation and it's taken anywhere up to two years just to get initial audit dates. Do you feel as though that can cause an issue with femtech development in the EU in comparison to the US? Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. So most of the femtech activity that we're seeing right now is in the US. Um, Over 50% of companies in femtech are located within North America. The majority of those are within the US. Um, Europe is the next 
you know, central hub that we have for femtech, but it's a, a much lower percentage. And so I think a lot of companies, whenever they're starting out in the femtech industry, whether they're starting in Europe or starting in the US, the ultimate goal is to get to the US market because of the regulations that we have that they might be able, you know, especially from privacy perspective, right, from regulatory perspectives, um, there's certain aspects where the US is not as stringent as the EU. And so there's also, you know, a, a rush to get to the US market, I will say. Um, almost every company that I have spoken with has some type of scaling or expansion plan that includes going directly to the US, not only because of, you know, they think it's easier from a regulatory perspective, which depending on what you're doing, right, may not be, uh, but also because that's where the market is right now. Um, we're able to do a lot of self-pay for these femtech devices that aren't covered by insurers. And there's just a huge market and a huge need in the US. And so I think that's another part of the reason that there's a huge influx of femtech companies into the US. So you've been described as having the first law firm in the US dedicated exclusively to women's health founders. At what point did you decide that you was going to found this law firm? And how did that process go for you? Yeah, so it's interesting. I whenever I started my legal career, I never set out to do anything in women's healthcare. I actually started my career in financial services and litigation and transitioned to healthcare about three or four years later when I realized that financial services work was extremely boring to me and I really wanted to have a, a deeper impact on the on the population. And so what happened, um, you know, I got into healthcare, I went to big law in Washington, DC, and I was working with managed care companies, pharmacy benefit managers, and you know, kind of those larger companies. And what happened is I then experienced my own women's health issue very unexpectedly. And I came across the term femtech and some unrelated research I was doing, and became very passionate about the field at that time. And as a result, I then switched my practice to helping startup companies bring women's health products to life faster. I recently um, you know, had, had another health issue and some family health issues. And so I stepped away from my work at a law firm so that I could focus on being with my family and, and, and helping out at that time. And as I started to move away from my current work, I started to see much more of a gap for early and mid-stage women's health founders and the fact that there weren't a lot of legal resources out there to help those companies. And I had seen that in practice as well, um, but you know it's kind of different when you're when you're working on the inside. Um, so standing from the outside, I was able to see that much clearer, and that really spurred me to think about okay, well, how can I give back? How can I contribute back to these women's health founders? And as a result, I ended up founding my own law firm. Uh, and what we've done is we focus exclusively on women's health innovators, and we specifically target those who are in their early or mid stage phases of their startup journey. And that's very intentional because we want to be able to provide affordable resources for women's health founders so that they can come in and help start building those data sets that we need for women's health and really drive the change that we see. So it's, it's very interesting. It's not at all where my career started. I don't even think the term femtech was coined when I was in law school. So it wasn't something that, that I ever anticipated going into. Uh, I was very lucky that this, this path found me. So for people in the audience that perhaps don't know much about this, what is the difference between femtech and women's health? What do they mean and how exactly do they differ or align? 
Great question. So there's a lot of symmetries between those two terms. When we're talking about femtech, what we're really talking about, and, and I'll say this out there first, right? There's no universal definition of femtech. But in my opinion, what we're really talking about are digital health solutions that are targeted towards women's health care or towards diseases that impact women disproportionately or differently from male counterparts. When we're talking about women's health, um, you know, that's a much broader spectrum and it can include things outside of digital health solutions. So that's kind of the, the difference there is that Femtech has the tech component. Um, so we're thinking, you know, things like your, your wearables, your apps, um, you know, mobile applications, those types of things that are targeting towards women's health. Um, I will say that Femtech is expanding. And so, you know, it's possible that we move beyond just the applications for digital health, that it eventually encompasses any type of healthcare practice or solution for women. Uh, I think that's the goal. And I think the ultimate goal is to get away from even needing a term like Femtech. Um, because as you know, right, we don't have a, a separate term called Mentech. Healthcare is assumed, you know, to be for men. And so I think our goal ultimately is to just have this be part of the normal healthcare or women's healthcare discussion. Uh, but until we get to that point, the term femtech really helps us know exactly what we're talking about in the industry with respect to digital health care for women. So in addition to some of the points that you've raised earlier, what are some of the unique challenges that the femtech industry faces in terms of growth and advancement? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of challenges. So this industry is new. And I will say the number one challenge that I hear from founders is fundraising. And obviously, fundraising is hard across all digital health verticals. But for women's healthcare, it's even tougher when we consider the gender inequities and imbalances in Silicon Valley and venture capital firms. So it's been shown that very few women sit on the top positions of Silicon Valley um, and investment boards. And as a result, much more of the investment that's happening in venture capital goes to male founders or to male products. And as a result, this means that women who have, you know, who have founded women's health companies that are coming and trying to get investment already have a disadvantage. Most of them will say that they have gone and at least had multiple experiences where they've tried to pitch their product to a male investor who has said, why should I care? How is this happen helping men? Um, why, why does this impact me at all? Uh, you're only dealing with 50% of the population. And so they're routinely dismissed whenever they go to seek that venture capital or fundraising. Um, and they oftentimes find themselves having to even explain to the VCs why this is important. Uh, some of the VCs who have women, um, you know, have uh, mothers, daughters, uh, wives, even them they're having to explain unless they've had a, a personal experience in that field um, or their you know, wife or daughter is suffering from one of those conditions. So that is a huge challenge because it means that only 4% of healthcare funding is really going towards women's health issues. Um, and it also means that women are getting just a tiny fraction of all digital health funding that's out there. The other major issue that women have is actually advertising these products. So even once they've acquired investment, right, they've built their products, they have an audience for it, they need to get the word out there. And so they're typically using, you know, the social media, regular types of advertising channels, or they try to at least. Um, almost every femtech founder that I have spoken with, and there has been um, a study by the Center for Intimacy Justice on this, has shown that women have had their accounts blocked um, or suspended because of their advertisements for women's healthcare products. 
The reason for this is you you can't say the female anatomy terms on social media on advertising platforms because it's deemed to be lewd and inappropriate and sexual content. So there's been a huge conflation of women's sexuality with women's health care. And the result has been that these products are not getting advertised to their intended audiences because there is an algorithm on a social media platform that says that it's an inappropriate content. And that is really harmful not only for the sales cycle for the femtech founders, but also for the women and the potential consumers who need access to these products to revolutionize their own health care. So those are two of the unique challenges that we have in women's health. Um, obviously, there, there are other challenges across medtech um, that are similar, but those are pretty unique for femtech. So you're also involved in a lot of mentoring and advisory positions. For the younger femtech founders listening today, what are the common mistakes that you see them make and what advice would you give to them? It's a great question. You know, uh, there's a lot of common mistakes that I see people make. One of the first is they don't do the research on the market fit early enough. Uh, They come in right and they think, you know what, I have this problem right or I know somebody who has had this problem and this is the solution that I've come up with. And it may be a great solution, but they're not vetting it. They're not testing it with others who are in this industry who may have similar conditions to see if that's really the solution that we need. Um, As a result, I have seen a lot of companies come to market with products that actually do not have a good market fit. And then they're struggling after they've gotten investment to still try to prove the appropriate market fit. So one of the things that I always recommend for femtech founders is get as much insight as you can early on about your product. There's always a tendency, right, to not want to share what you're doing because you're afraid that somebody else may capitalize on your intellectual property or steal your idea. Um, I'd say that does not happen very often in practice. And most often in the femtech industry, you'll find supportive mentors who are willing to help point you in the right direction for testing your product fit. Um, So that's kind of the first thing. The second thing I see is not involving an attorney early enough in the process. I hear so many times from from young founders and they say, okay, I've got a limited amount of money and I need to focus on bringing this product to market. I'll deal with the legal and regulatory cleanup later. And that's a problem for a couple of reasons. The first is depending on the type of product that you're bringing to life, this is a highly regulated field in the US, um, even though it might be less regulated in certain aspects than the EU or other countries. Healthcare itself is highly regulated. And so if you're doing anything beyond just, you know, a run-of-the-mill mobile app, you need to understand the different legal implications that this can have and your risks in this industry because you might be planning for partnerships down the line as part of your revenue model that could potentially be illegal under our fraud and abuse laws or other types of legislation. So at least involve a lawyer early to get their insight on what you're doing, what you need to be looking out for, because they can issue spot for you in ways that would allow you to pivot much more quickly and flexibly flexibly in an early stage than at a later stage. The other things that I see uh, for femtech founders making mistakes on privacy. So after the Dobbs decision, privacy has become absolutely paramount, both for consumers and for investors. Um, I've talked to investors and they say, you know, we've always cared about privacy, but now it's privacy with a capital P. We're actively looking at it. In the early stages, a lot of femtech companies say, you know what, I don't have the money to spend on privacy. I'm, you know, I'm a startup. 
I'm very, very new to this space. I think these, you know, hackers and other, you know, privacy organizations who might be out to get me, they're not going to come for me. They're going to come for larger, more established organizations in the community. And that's an incorrect mindset because oftentimes hackers and, you know, regulatory agencies, they know that you're young, that you probably don't have the right infrastructure in place. And so you're actually at much easier target for them than a large healthcare organization that has strong privacy and security standards and practices in place. So that's one of the things that I always like to counsel femtech companies on is if you want to be competitive in this post-Dobbs environment, you have to actually be doing privacy by design, security by design, and incorporating privacy-centric technology from the start. I see too often companies trying to add in privacy protections um, and enhancements after their product's been on the market for a while. By that point, you already have a reputation on your privacy and security practices, and it's much more difficult and costly to add it in at the back end than to incorporate it into your company at the beginning and into your product at the outset. Uh, so that's that's something that I really see a lot of. I also see early stage femtech companies doing a lot of copying and pasting on privacy policies, terms of use, and other documents from competitors. That's problematic as well, because I will say the Federal Trade Commission is looking at healthcare companies right now, especially health tech companies, and especially companies in femtech. We just had an FTC case against Premom, uh, which is a, a fertility tracker. And we've seen also FTC action against Flow back in 2021. And that's because Partly, they were using consumer data in ways that they said they weren't going to do so in their privacy policies. So as you're continuing to build your product, um, even at the early stages, make sure that any promises that you're making to consumers are accurate. Make sure that they actually reflect how you're handling data. And also make sure that it is being updated because your product's going to continue to evolve and change and your privacy policies and promises need to change too. So for the listeners who are interested in learning more about femtech and startups, etc., and what's involved, like he was mentioning, security, what sort of resources or platforms would you recommend that they explore in their early days to make the decision whether that's something that they want to get involved in or not? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of resources out there. Um, you know, that's one of the things that we're trying to build at Fem Innovation is actually the first comprehensive platform for women's healthcare founders to come at their early and mid stages and get access to all the resources they need, all of the, you know, reputable vendors that are out there that know the femtech industry. Um, so if you're wanting to get involved in that and being part of that platform, absolutely reach out to us because that's what we're trying to build. There are other platforms out there that people can get involved in to learn more about the companies that are out there, connect with other founders, and get some other resources. In the femtech field, um, the couple that I'm aware of that I would recommend, Women of Wearables is one. Uh, they do a femtech expo. And so you can come in here from selected companies that are pitching their ideas to a wide variety of you know investors, people who are just interested, vendors, um, and see kind of the products that are out there and network with those founders to hear about their journeys and their challenges. Uh, they also have just a great online community and platform uh, newsletter as well that gives resources. 
The other one is um, if you're just kind of looking for the latest news in Femtech, right, seeing if this is an industry that you want to get into, Femtech Insider has a great newsletter that they put out. So you can kind of start to look at, you know, the funding in Femtech, the trends in Femtech, see what the latest articles are, hear about what some of these companies are doing. They've got webinars as well that can help you decide if this is an industry that you want to actually explore. HitLab is another one. It's not just for Femtech, but though they do have um, Women's Health Wednesdays. But HitLab is kind of mo much more broader for medtech. And it also involves bringing people together to hear the pitches for early stage, mid-stage companies and see the new innovations that are out there. Um, it's a great platform as well to do some networking and connections. And one of the things I will say is Femtech is one of the most collaborative communities that I have ever experienced. Um, you know, I'm a privacy attorney as well. And the privacy industry is, you know, much different, um, more heavily dominated by males, and much less collaborate, collaborative than something like femtech, where we all know that everybody's kind of getting up and running, it's a relatively new industry. And so people are much more willing to introduce you to their connections or to talk about places you should be uh, resources that you should be using. So to that extent, I would say, you know, reach out. Um, almost any of us in the femtech community will be willing to connect and will be willing to point you in the right direction as well. Yep, definitely reach out. I'll be sharing this with my listeners and all your links that you've recommended. So yeah, thank you very much for that. On the topic of mentoring and advising, there may be some people in the audience that are looking to probably try to get into these positions. Where exactly do they start? Because I found that there are some people out there like yourself who are happy to share their knowledge, but they may not necessarily know how to best go about it. What would you recommend for them? Yeah, so if you're looking to get into the mentorship field, I highly recommend it. Um, it's very rewarding. And I will say it's not a huge time commitment, depending on your area of expertise and depending on how many, you know, uh, clients or founders that you're willing to take on. So I mentor at multiple organizations. I am involved with Femtech Lab. Uh, that's a UK based organization, even though I'm in the US, they have a huge network of founders, um, you know, past founders, uh, resources, everything that you could want, their network is huge. Um, and so they're always looking for new mentors as well. If that's something that you would like to be involved in, uh, Tatiana is a fantastic person to reach out to at Femtech Lab. She's very, very excellent in what she does. She's a great resource. Uh, additionally, Impact 51, that's an Israeli company that is focused on bringing Femtech innovations to life over in Israel. I do mentorship for them. They also are, are always looking for great mentors. And as some of their companies start to get up and running, I'm sure they'll be looking to move into new markets. So for instance, if you're in the EU, right, or the US, and then, you know, they're looking to come over, you could be very valuable with your expertise. There's also other organizations or accelerators or incubators that you can get involved with. There's a huge variety of them. That's really the place to start if you're not sure kind of which accelerator or incubator you want to be involved in exactly with. Just Google, uh, you know, femtech accelerators, femtech incubators, or, you know, more generally, right, medtech incubators, medtech accelerators. And then you'll come up with a list of those kind of companies, and you can look and see which ones match your needs, which ones have a relatively you know, light or heavy time commitment that would work with your schedule. Some of the other ones that, that I'm involved in, for instance, you know, Techstars, Mass Challenge, those are, you know, much widely, you know, more broadly known, um, but they're also not just limited to femtech. They have medtech. The other thing, too, is... <clears throat> 
there's often times where these companies will put on pitch challenges. And so there you could have the opportunity to serve as a judge for some of those challenges, which would allow you to not only hear more of the pitches that are coming out, but also on that day that you're you're judging, get insights from other people in the industry for what they look for during these pitches. And I've done that a few times. And it's been a very, very fantastic educational experience for me, um, and has helped me to provide better mentorship to my clients, um, and also the companies that I mentor in these organizations. So earlier on the show, you mentioned that the term fintech came around in 2016. What was it called before? Or was it just the case that there wasn't a universal term for it? Yeah, so there was not a universal term for it before, um, you know, and, and I think that was part of the problem. We now that we have femtech, there are people who disagree, right, on whether it's a good term or a bad term, right? Is it exclusionary in its own right? The one good thing that's really come from having the term femtech is that we now have a cohesive term that we can have a dialogue around. And so we didn't really have that before. There was no real way to unite other than saying women's health care generally. And so now that we have femtech, we're able to come together and have these conversations where people know exactly what we're talking about. We know what the purpose of this new industry is. Um, and so that's been really, really helpful. It's not to say that digital health solutions for women's health didn't exist prior to 2016, because they did. Um, women's health care has obviously long existed. Um, but now we actually have a term where we can, you know, unify around it and really get central and purposeful on our purpose and on our mission. So you're obviously very busy with your work, your mentoring, advisory, and all the other different positions that you're in. But in the small amount of free time that you do have, what do you like to get up to? Yes, so I love free time. Uh, travel is one of the things that I am most grateful to do with my family. It's one of my biggest passions. Uh, the other things that I do is I'm an amateur photographer. So I love doing landscape and wildlife photography. Um, I make photo books from from our pictures. I've got a huge creative side that really comes from my family on, on both sides. My Nana actually hand makes cards. She's handmade quilts before. Um, so, so that's really where it comes from. I'm really right now more into the jewelry making. Uh, so that's really what I what I focus on in my spare time is really the travel, the photography, the jewelry making, um, and trying to keep up with my two small dogs. Which I'm guessing is a full time job in itself. <laughs> Hugely full time job, especially you know they're they're like three feet, but they think that they're huge and they think they're super super you know running the world. Um, so it's it's a challenge. So Bethany, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. What one piece of advice would you be leaving the listeners with today? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. This has been phenomenal discussion. You know, I think the one piece of advice I would like to leave listeners with is don't be ex afraid to explore. Uh, I didn't get into the femtech field until I was several years out of law school and into my career. And it was a pivot for me. And so and I think it's also been a pivot for a lot of the other founders out there in this space who didn't intend to come into women's health. And then they had a potentially negative experience or they saw somebody suffering from an illness. And that really inspired them to get into this field. So if you're at all interested in this field, I would absolutely recommend checking it out. Don't be afraid of that pivot and just continue to keep learning and, and embracing what life throws at you. Thank you very much for your time, Bethany. Thank you. Thank you for listening to episode 52 of the MedTech Podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe. If you wish to learn more about Bethany, you can connect with her online or visit her company website, 
the links of which are provided in the description. If there are any particular topics or guests you'd like for me to have on the show in the future, then feel free to reach out.